Well, thanks for joining us for Redemption Church Online. Last week, we began a new series in the book of First Peter. First Peter is a letter written by the Apostle Peter uh, to Christians throughout uh, Asia Minor, basically, which is very, um, very similar to modern day Turkey in terms of geography. And this series is titled Strangers on the Earth. And I chose that title for the series because it's a book written to Christians who, in a sense, are living on this earth as strangers, people who this isn't necessarily our eternal home. And uh, we're meant to stand out a little bit. We're meant to be different. We're meant um, to, to be set apart, as God so often says in his word. And so this series titled Strangers on the Earth will take us through the book of First Peter. Today, I want to do part one of what I'm calling the stranger's orientation. And next week will be part two. The stranger's orientation, we're going to look at this idea of salvation defined. What is salvation? What do we need to know about salvation? We're going to actually look at a very rich few verses of Peter's letter that talks about a lot of the different elements of salvation. And so I encourage you to follow along on the screen or open your Bibles at home. First Peter chapter one, verses three through nine. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As we talk about what is salvation and defining salvation, I want to I start with the question, why, why salvation? Why become a Christian? Have you ever, have you ever been asked that or, or even stopped to think, why did you become a Christian? What is the advantage of being a Christian over being a non-Christian? What is the advantage of trusting in Christ or being a believer in Christ? Well, let me read this to you. I think it's important to think about this. I want to I I turn the table a little bit and think about this from the other perspective. Why should I be a Christian? On the surface, Christians don't seem to have it any better than non-Christians. And sometimes they have it much worse. Christians get sick with the same diseases as non-Christians. Christians experience the same emotional pain as non-Christians, maybe even more because they live with the concern of loved ones being eternally separated from God and from us. Christians have the same money trouble as non-Christians and worse are constantly pestered to give away the money they do have. Life expectancy is seemingly the same among Christians and non-Christians, Christian couples experience similar rates of infidelity, abuse, abandonment, and divorce as non-Christian couples. Christians experience social isolation and even ridicule because of their so-called narrow-minded views on God, marriage, human sexuality, abortion, and what other, whatever other hot-button hot issues arise. So why be a Christian? If, if, if it's true that there really isn't a whole lot of advantages to being a Christian over a non-Christian, in fact, there are some pretty severe, as I just labeled or just laid out, disadvantages. 
The reality is that Christians are unwelcomed and unwanted on this earth. And more and more as the days go on. I was thinking about this this week when the coronavirus pandemic was at its height in New York City. And there was a lot of concern about whether or not there were enough supplies and hospital beds and medical equipment and ventilators and all, all those things that were going on. And, and there was a lot of panic over that. Well, there was a Christian organization called Samaritan's Purse. You may have seen this on the news that actually went into New York City and they set up this pretty decent sized field hospital right in the middle of Central Park. Christian doctors and Christian nurses went from the safer places that they lived in and they went into the center of this pandemic, putting their lives and their health at risk. And they went there to help. They went there to serve. What was the reaction of New York City to this? How did the political leaders of that city respond? Were they overjoyed that somebody would take such a risk to come and to serve the people of New York City? Of course they weren't because these were Christians that were coming in. They questioned their motives. Mayor de Blasio, in fact, assured non-Christians that he was gonna send people into uh, this setup to make sure that they were doing things the way they should be doing things, not in terms of medical care. There were no questions about their medical care. It was questions of their beliefs and their morals. And they, they came under uh, intense criticism. The, the leader of that organization was threatened because they went in to help emphasizing the point that Christians are unwelcomed and unwanted on this earth. We are indeed strangers on the earth. However, that being the downside of being a Christian, the upside, what is to be gained by becoming a Christian? I want to argue from this passage right here in first Peter far outweighs any temporary cost or negatives. To be a Christian is far better to be a non-Christian for many reasons. And we're going to look at some of those together. The first thing you see on your handout is this. Salvation is the experience of a new birth that leads to immeasurable change. And as I prepared to preach this, I, I would actually add to that and benefits. Salvation is the experience of a new birth that leads to immeasurable change and benefits. Having considered some of the potential downside of being a Christian, what we really need to do is look at the immeasurable upside at how much we gain by being a Christian. Salvation is a big deal. It's a huge deal. It is the, it is the most, it's the biggest and most important thing that can happen to you in your life. It doesn't always happen as a big deal. It can feel very subtle, even to the point that some Christians are unsure of when or even if it happened to them. That's very common. We don't always know the moment during which salvation occurred, when we, when, when we go from being unsaved to saved or when we go from death to life. Uh, I can personally point back to when I believe that happened in my life, but it's not uncommon at all for believers to say, you know what, I don't really know when it happened. Uh, I just kind of always believed this, or I, I always followed Christ, or I can kind of see when it began to happen, but I'm not sure when it, it really, really changed. That's, that's not a big deal. It's, it's very common. Nonetheless, nothing could be bigger than the occurrence of salvation in your life. Nothing could be bigger. And Peter wants us to know that. He wants us to know that in the letter that he wrote. 
He wants to outline some of the immeasurable benefits of becoming a Christian. He wants to outline for us what salvation is. And so in these verses, verses three through nine, that's what he's doing. He's defining salvation. He's putting in a, in a very concentrated form, many of the things that happen and many of the things that are going to happen as a result of personal salvation. Uh, I was thinking if you've ever seen the movies, Ace Ventura, um, I've watched them many times, especially when nature calls It's my favorite of the two. But if you've ever watched Ace Ventura, he's a detective, he's a pet detective and he solves bizarre cases. And it's a, it's a, they're bizarre movies. It's Jim Carrey. What do you expect? Uh, but in Ace Ventura, whenever he's getting ready to solve a case or when he's getting ready to express how he has solved a case, he sometimes will stop and he'll take this real deep breath and you go, and then in one breath, he'll just let, he'll just, just unleash all of the details of how he put together this case and how this affected this. And this is what happened. And then this happened and this, and then everybody's standing there going, wow, how did he see all of that? That's kind of what first Peter three through nine feels like. It's as if Peter took a deep breath and he said, real quick, before I get into this letter, real quick, before I get into all the instruction, let me just in one big, deep breath, talk about salvation. So he says in verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which is refined by fire, even though it's perishable, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seen him, now you believe him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, I couldn't even begin to get that all out in one breath. But Peter, in, in just a few verses, gives us so much to think about in terms of salvation. There's just incredible depth and riches to what he just described. And, he, and it's not even exhaustive. He doesn't cover everything that salvation entails. In fact, I'm not sure that there's even any mention of the forgiveness of sins, which is what we immediately think about when we think about salvation. There's, there's a lot that he leaves out. At least there's some that he leaves out, but he gives us a lot to think about. So let's, let's not in just one breath, but in a lot of breaths, step back and let's look at these piece by piece. And let's think about some of the things that he says are part of salvation. What is it? How do we define salvation? What is gained at salvation? What does salvation look like in the lives of Christians? Well, on your handout, you'll see this. Strangers are born again into a living hope and an eternal inheritance. Born again into a living hope and an eternal inheritance. Two things. We'll look at them separately. Uh, uh, str- living hope and eternal inheritance. Verse three. We'll look at the first one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is praise. This is this is putting honor where honor is due. God has done this. God the Father has done this, and He's done it uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ because of His great mercy. He has given us new birth. It's because of his mercy. Salvation is not worked for, earned, or deserved. 
It's because of his mercy. It's because of his grace. It's because of his, his great love for human beings that he gives salvation. It's not something, it's not something that you could ever buy or, or earn or be worthy of. It's a gift given out of his great mercy. What is it that he's given out of his great mercy? He's given us new birth into a living hope. Well, first of all, this idea of, of new birth, it's something that Jesus uh, talks about in, in John, I believe chapter three, when he's um, talking about what it means to be born again. To be born again, he says, it's, it's not about going back into your mother's womb, you know, because that's probably immediately what, what people would have thought, you know, like born again, what are you talking about? Be born again. You can only be born once. He says, no, it's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing that happens in the lives of people when they receive salvation. We're born again, new birth. I mean, think about the richness of new birth, a, a, a kind of a, a, f- a fresh start, a clean slate, a new beginning. The old is gone and the new begins. That's the beauty of salvation. I, I mean, not, it, it, no, not that Christians are, are perfect after that or Christians are expected to be proud of everything that they do after they're born again. But isn't, doesn't it feel good to say that, hey, what's in my past was in my past. I was born again. I didn't, I, I got, you know, the first time pretty rough. I didn't do it right the first time. The second time God is working in me. I'm born again. We're given new birth. We're given a new start. Maybe, maybe you've not been born again. Let me encourage you to receive the gift of salvation so that you can have a new birth, a new beginning, a new life, a life that's different, a life where things are changed, where you're going to do things differently because you're going to do them with the help of the Holy Spirit and you're going to do them out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. So this new birth we're born into, like I said, two things. One, a living hope. It's significant that it's called a living hope. Things that are living are growing and increasing. Our hope as, as we go on our Christian journey and as we grow in faith and grow in Christ, our hope grows with it. Our hope of what the resurrection of Jesus has accomplished for us in the past and in the present and especially in the future. This is an immediate benefit of becoming a Christian. You suddenly have a new living hope. You have a hope that's alive. That hope that is living is Jesus Christ. It is the resurrection of Jesus. Just as Jesus is no longer dead, that he has been resurrected and he is alive today. So hope is not dead for those who have been given new birth. They have a living hope. They have a living hope in Jesus Christ. But this is just the down payment. Hope is just the down payment of the things that are to come. I mean, I was thinking about like things like the NFL draft, these guys that go early in the NFL draft, these college superstars, they come into the draft. They're most of them are dead broke. You know, they don't get paid for, for competing in college sports. And they're, and some of them might even come from poor families at times. They don't, they don't have any money. They're college students. They haven't had the opportunity to go out and earn money. And then suddenly first, second, third, fourth, fifth draft pick, they, they get drafted by some NFL team and, and all of a sudden, they go from being dead broke to being multimillionaires. But it doesn't happen instantly. They don't get that money the moment they're drafted. What do they get? They get a jersey and a hat. They get a jersey and a hat. And that jersey and a hat is a commitment by the team that says, you're with us now. 
You're part of our organization. We're going to make you very rich and hopefully be successful as an athlete, but you're with us. It's a down payment. It's, it's not the check itself. The money hasn't been transferred, but it's assurance that it's coming. And so it is with this living hope. We're part of the team now. He's made us part of the family. He's brought us in. He's drafted us. He's adopted us to use biblical language. He's adopted us, but we don't get everything at that moment of salvation. We get this living hope, but there's also a future to look forward to. And that is in verse four, given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then verse four and into an inheritance and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you. So the living hope is the down payment. It's the immediate benefit. It's what happens right away. There's also this speak of a future inheritance and inheritance is something that is yet to come, something we've not yet received in full. And it's described in three ways, all of these significant one, it's imperishable. It won't decay or wear out over time in contrast with earthly things that do decay and wear out. In fact, Peter himself mentions gold here, which is typically uh, thought of as one of the most longest lasting imperishable things. I mean, gold lasts, it holds, but even that doesn't last forever. It's perishable. In fact, everything on the earth, everything that you and I see, everything that we can buy, everything that we currently possess is perishable. It'll go away at one point or another in the future. It decays, it wears out. Life is like a metal car on the streets of Pennsylvania in the winter (laughs) and all that salt gets in there and all those chemicals get in there and it just rusts and it decays and it's, and you just see these beautiful vehicles turned into piles of scrap. That is a depiction of what life on earth is like. It wears out, it rusts, it decays. We talked about this in Ecclesiastes again and again, as we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, it doesn't last, it's heavy. It's like trying to grab a hold of smoke. It's perishable. Everything that we work for, everything that we value, everything that we long to have and to possess on this earth eventually just decays. But we have an inheritance in Jesus Christ that is imperishable. It is literally imperishable forever. It is not subject to any decay. It is not subject to wearing out over time. The New Testament uses the word that's translated here, imperishable, only to describe eternal heavenly realities. Things like God, God's word, our resurrection bodies, our inheritance. It won't decay. It won't wear out. It will last forever. It's imperishable, but it's also undefiled, meaning it's unpolluted by sin. One of the, one of the challenges of, of living in this world as strangers on this earth is that even the, even the good parts of God's creation are still polluted by sin. Even the things that, that are seemingly good are affected in some way by sin. They, they don't last or they eventually turn bad or uh, they just don't hold up the way that they're supposed to because they're polluted by sin. Almost everything, well, everything that we experience here on earth has been touched by sin's stain. But our inheritance is undefiled. Our inheritance is when we will finally experience life that is not tainted by sin in any way. 
It is when we'll finally get to enjoy God's creation without the pollution or the defilement of sin in any way. It's hard to imagine what that'll be like, but that is the inheritance that we have. We're born into this through the new birth. We're born into God's family. You know, an inheritance is typically passed on through families, right? And that's typical of how the Bible speaks of us. We're adopted into his family and made co-heirs with Christ. That's how the Bible describes it. We're co-heirs with him, meaning his inheritance is our inheritance. We will share it with him. And it's imperishable. It's undefiled. And then lastly, it's unfading. It would not grow dim or lose any of its worth and glory. I can't think of anything in life like that. I can't think of anything in my current life that doesn't fade, that doesn't grow dim, that doesn't begin to lose value at some point. Our bodies do this. Our possessions do this. Our homes do this. Uh, Even the earth itself, if it's not properly maintained, begins to fade I mean, buy a piece of property and do nothing with it. And you'll see that weeds grow up and take over and, and, and everything fades. It's glory fades, but not the inheritance that we are born into through Jesus Christ. It's imperishable. It's undefiled and it's unfading. And it's for you and I. It's for you and I to have one day forever. That's what we have to look forward to. The immediate benefit is this living hope. The future benefit is this inheritance, which is being kept in heaven for us. We have an inheritance that far outweighs any inheritance on earth. You know, Sam Walton built such wealth that he made billionaires out of all of his children. That's quite an inheritance. I, I, I don't, I don't think there's a wealthier family on the earth. Um, but that's quite an inheritance to be so wealthy that all of your kids become billionaires when they inherit what you leave behind for them. That's incredible. But here's the reality in a, just a few short years, we will, we will receive an inheritance that far outweighs the Waltons. Their money will be gone. It'll be worthless. It'll be absolutely useless. I mean, you know, they're enjoying it now. I'm sure. But there's coming a day, and it's not that far off, when, it, when you and I will have a better inheritance than them. And it'll last forever. That's what we're born into. We're born into that. Uh, strangers are born into a living hope and an eternal inheritance. That's part of salvation. Next, we see this. We're going to uh, look at the next thing on the handout, which is strangers are protected by God's power through faith. Strangers are protected by God's power through faith. And I, I almost changed this and then I left it because I wanted it to be a little bit provocative. Strangers are protected by God's power through faith. What does that mean? Let's look at verse five. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation. Okay, that's, we're being guarded by God's power through faith. We'll talk about that a little bit. For what? For a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Sometimes we, we uh, well, I don't, I don't, let me be careful how far I take this, okay? Our new, it's our new birth that is being guarded. That's what I want to say. And that's what I almost changed it to. Our new birth is what is being guarded, not our health, not our wealth or, or even our lives. There's, there's no guarantee that we get, that those things are being guarded by Christ. 
or being guarded by God's power. It's our salvation. It's our new birth that he promises to guard with his power through faith. We're being guarded for future salvation that is to be revealed later. You see, salvation has, has multiple aspects. There's salvation past what's already been done for us. And in my salvation past, uh, my sins are forgiven. The guilt and the shame and the penalty of the sins are taken away by Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm born into a new family. Those are things that are in the past, but then there's the salvation that I'm living out now. It's this living hope. It's that I'm being transformed and being renewed day by day as God's spirit does his work in me. But in the future, there is even further salvation, that inheritance that we're talking about. Our salvation has already taken place, is happening now, and will happen one day in the future. And we can be guaranteed that if we have been saved, we will be saved then. What I mean by that is if we have been saved, our salvation will be brought to completion because it's not necessarily us that's doing it, but it's God who's doing it. And it's by his power. So we're being guarded by God's power through faith. The rela- it's interesting that it says, well, which is it? Is it God's power or is it our faith? Which one? And, and, and Peter doesn't necessarily answer that question right here. He just throws both of them into the mix. They're both a part of the recipe. It's God's power that enables us to have faith. But apart from our faith, God's power isn't necessarily present. He guards us through faith. They go together. They go hand in hand. There's what he's doing, guarding us by his power. And what we're doing is exercising faith. We're believing in Jesus. And so the two go together in some way that we maybe don't always understand. But nonetheless, it's clear here that strangers are protected by God's power through faith. Again, not our health, not our wealth, or even our lives. In fact, Peter, as he writes this, unbeknownst to him, is about to enter into great suffering and even be martyred to be killed because of his faith in Jesus. His life isn't being guarded. His eternal life is being guarded. His salvation, his new birth is what is being protected by God's power. And so it is with all believers. He guards, he guards and he protects us through, by his power through faith. Next, strangers experience various trials so that their faith may be proven and result in praise, glory, and honor. All three of those are important. Strangers experience various trials so that their faith may be proven and result in praise, glory, and honor. That's right here in verses six and seven. You rejoice in this. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith. And then he in parentheses here sort of says more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our faith is tested through various trials to be proven so that it may result in Praise, glory, and honor. So you see here, the purpose of various trials is to prove, and perhaps by indication here uh, in this reference to gold, to be refined by those trials. So that, that that faith will be proven true and result in praise, glory, and honor. So that our faith will be proven true and that we will receive rewards from Jesus himself. 
This happens at a, a so Peter's writing to a, a pretty broad audience of Christians, right? Some of them may have already experienced persecution. Many of them may have not. We don't know all the details of all the individuals who would receive this letter. But what's interesting is most people agree that Peter's writing this immediately before the major persecution of AD 64 to 68, which would break out in the Roman Empire under Emperor Nero. Nero was uh, an interesting man, uh, much like uh, much like Herod, it makes me think of Herod, very paranoid, um, very violent person. Uh, but in AD 64, which is probably a year or two after Peter wrote this letter, there's a huge fire in Rome. And uh, the emperor uh, of Rome, Nero, wants to blame it on somebody. Plus, he does, already doesn't like Christians. And so he blames it on the Christians and uses it as an excuse to round up as many Christians as they can in the city and beyond and have them killed uh, for lighting this fire, which they clearly didn't light. It's said that during that persecution, that which lasted four years, as, as Nero persecuted Christians heavily, something that... that Peter would have been unaware of when he wrote this letter because it was yet to happen. It said that during that persecution is when Paul and Peter were both martyred for the faith in Rome. Uh, as I mentioned last week, it, church history states that Peter was crucified upside down because they were going to crucify him normally. And he considered himself not worthy to suffer the same fate as his savior, Jesus Christ. And so they very kindly crucified him upside down. Strangers experience various trials. That's nothing new. It's nothing new to come under fire for your faith. It's, and, and, and it's not always just coming under fire for your faith. The Bible talks about trials in a very broad spectrum of ideas. And sometimes it's just, it can be health things that we're going through or things that are challenging within our family or the loss of jobs or loss of income. It can, it can be, you know even things like the coronavirus, that's a trial that is testing people's faith as you deal with the anxiety and the fear and the uncertainty of what's going on in our world today. Is your faith being proven? Is your faith being refined? You know, the refining process is when you, when you heat up a, a metal to a very, very high temperature so that it becomes molten, right? And that any impurities in it will rise to the top so that they can be removed and so that what is left behind is purer than what you started with. That's what trials do. Sometimes, tri sometimes things get ugly in the midst of trials. Sometimes we're not happy with the way we're responding. That's been my experience. Sometimes I'm not proud of how I respond in the midst of trials, but they have this effect. They have this effect of, of refining our faith. And the end result is that our faith may be proven and result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so if you stand firm through trials, if you, or even if you just hang on in the midst of trials, and don't lose, don't lose hold of the faith that has saved you, then there will be a day when you will stand before Jesus Christ at his revelation, when his glory is being revealed to all of the world, that you will join in that glory and praise and honor because your faith has been proven through trials. Lastly, this, this is an important one because there are some identifiers. How do we know who's a Christian? Well, here's the last point. Strangers love Jesus, believe in Jesus, and rejoice in his salvation. 
Strangers, love Jesus, believe in Jesus, and rejoice in his salvation. Let me read the text, and then we'll talk about this. The text is verses 8 and 9. It's the end of our passage for today. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seen him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Strangers, love Jesus, believe in Jesus, and rejoice at his salvation. That's how we know who the true believers are. If, if salvation is defined by all of these things, it's, it's expressed through a love of Jesus, a belief in Jesus, and a rejoicing in his salvation. Lots of people say they're Christians. Lots of people would affirm that they believe certain things about Jesus. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the message of the Bible or whatever, you know, however they want to say it. They might even do Christian things. But true believers, true believers will express all three of these characteristics. You will actually love Jesus. You will not just believe the message about Jesus, but that your heart will have affection for him. You'll be grateful. You will want to know him. You will enjoy your relationship with him. You will love him. If someone doesn't love Jesus, they're not a Christian. They're not saved. Salvation is defined by a love for Jesus. You cannot... and. I don't want to, maybe this is too big of a rabbit trail to hop onto, but there's certain things that if you're going to love Jesus, you have to love. uh, This is one of my hobby horses. So I'm just going to go there. If you love Jesus, you'll love the church. Let me say that. If you love Jesus, you'll love the church because in the Bible, Jesus himself describes his church as his body and as his bride. You can't tell me that you love somebody if you don't love their body. I don't mean that in a sensual way, but if you don't love their actual expression, how they've revealed themselves, how they exist in the world today, if you don't love their body and love their bride, you can't love them. But strangers love Jesus and they express that love for him. Strangers believe in Jesus. The term, the, the, the word that's translated belief here, and this is going to become very important for understanding all of the New Testament, especially in the fall when we launch into the gospel of John and do a sermon series through the gospel of John. We'll talk a lot about belief because John talks a lot about belief, but to believe is not just simply to agree with some facts about something. To believe is to put your trust in. That's the biblical sense of the word belief. To trust in, to rely on, to grab hold of. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. That's why the Bible says that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Everyone who trusts in him, everybody who grabs a hold of his salvation, everybody who commits themselves to them. Not just everybody who says, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, that's probably true. I can, I can affirm that that's something I hold to. It's something that you trust in. So you love Jesus, you believe Jesus, and you rejoice in his salvation. If you're not happy that you're saved, I don't mean superficial happiness, and I don't mean it has to be all the time, but if you're not glad, if you're not joyful, if you don't rejoice that Jesus has saved you, if you don't think about what he did and go, dang, He saved me. Like I have eternal life because of him. I love him. I believe in him and I rejoice in the salvation that he had. Then you're not a believer. Salvation has not come to you if you're not rejoicing. It's good news. That's what gospel means. It's the good news about Jesus and good news leads to rejoicing. So let me say this to us as a church. So then why don't we show it 
when we gather together as Christians. Christian assembly should be a time of rejoicing. And trust, I'm a very stoic person in worship. I don't mean that you have to be all crazy when you worship. You can be. I, I don't have a problem with that. I just, but, some, but sometimes my rejoicing is, is somewhat inward. But I push myself to make it outward because I want people to know. And I want the church to know that I'm rejoicing in salvation. I'm glad that I have this opportunity to sing his praise and to worship him. Strangers love Jesus, believe in Jesus, and rejoice in Jesus. So the question is, and by definition, by the definition give, given in these verses, are you a stranger? Have you been saved? Are you a Christian? Are you a believer and a follower of Jesus? By the definition given here in, in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, is this what your life looks like? Are you able to endure trials knowing that they're refining and, and proving your faith? Is your faith, is your salvation being protected by God's power through faith? Have you experienced new birth? Do you have this living hope? Are you looking forward to a future inheritance? This is what it means to be born again. And are you, do you believe and trust in Jesus. Do you love him? And do you rejoice at his salvation? If not, this is the time when I invite you to begin doing so today. Trust in Jesus today. Put your faith and your confidence and your hope and your future in him. Believe that what he did when Jesus Christ died on the cross, paying the price for your sins, that he did that for you so that you could be saved and so that you could be a Christian or as we're calling them in this book, strangers on the earth so that you can begin living a life that ultimately honors and glorifies him and results in this eternal inheritance that will last forever and eternal life. And if you have done that, great, celebrate it, rejoice in it and tell other people about it. Take this salvation and share it with the people around you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for salvation. Thank you that you have redeemed us. You've made us part of your family taking the guilt and shame and penalty and the, the payment of our sins upon yourself. And you did that on the cross where you died for me and you died for all who would believe. Jesus, if there's anybody today that you're calling to believe in you for the first time, would you just gloriously bring them into the family? Let them know that they're loved, that they're forgiven, that they're saved because of what you have done. And help us to live together as strangers on this earth knowing that one day we'll go to our real home, which is with you in eternity. And may we take as many people there with us as we possibly can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us. I'm looking forward to continuing into part two, where we're going to talk about salvation foretold and look at how the Bible foretold God's plan of redemption that was eventually manifested in Jesus uh, and how um, we should celebrate and rejoice in that. So hope you'll join us next week. Let's continue and worship through one more song together.